Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast and welcome to episode number 174. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro, and I am delighted to have Dr. Ryan Marino joining me in episode 174. Ryan is a medical toxicologist. It's a fantastic specialty of medicine. It touches the lives of everybody. And we go into how that works. We go into the nitty gritty of what a medical toxicologist does, how it touches everybody's life, how they keep us safe, how the principles of toxicology are applied to keep people from harm, to do harm reduction. And it really helps unlock and open up this specialty that for a lot of people is poorly understood or something that they had never actually heard of before. The other great thing about Ryan is that he is very active on social media, like so many of my guests, and he is exceptional at really stepping into tension and battling back against false narratives, battling back against disinformation, taking on really all comers, whether it's anti-vaccine commentators, whether it's people talking about fentanyl, whether it's people talking about vaping. He gets right in there. He shares facts. He communicates effectively. And he shares a lot of the good stuff that he does to do this well with us. So there's good opportunities for learning here, especially when we're invested in doing this. And actually, it's interesting. This episode is going up the day after on social media. Hashtag Doctors Speak Up was trending. And this was a project that was started on social media for physicians to really give voice to the importance of what they do, particularly around vaccines and vaccine safety and vaccine science. Ryan is is really one of those people who speaks, who speaks loudly, but more importantly, speaks effectively, whether it's on social media or whether it's at the bedside. And he shares some of the things that he does that allow him to find success with people who are hesitant, with people who are concerned, with people who are defensive. And that's important work because there's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing better than helping a person make decisions that are going to impact their long-term health and their safety. And Ryan is one of the people who can Give us some of those tools. It was a fantastic conversation. Before we get to it, just want to invite everyone to, again, take a look at the archive of Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The whole archive is there. So much good stuff. I, I think if you go and look around, you will absolutely find content. It's all evergreen. You don't have to listen to episode one to get caught up. You just find the stuff that looks interesting to you and, and go for it. Please subscribe wherever you like to download your shows. We're on all of the major platforms. Definitely leave us that rating and a review. And if you have a chance to subscribe, that really helps the show out. Also, please share with friends and colleagues. Please amplify on social media. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And I also can't tell you how helpful it is. So if those opportunities feel useful, feel available to you, please do take them. It is much appreciated. I'm very active on social media at ETS show, and I'm on Instagram as well at explore the space show. And you can email me anytime, mark at explore the space show.com. This was a really, really interesting and really high yield conversation, especially right after the hashtag doctor speak up, seeing how much energy there is around this, seeing how much good work there is, seeing how invested people are. It's really motivating. It's really exciting. Ryan is one of those people. It was great to speak with him. Great to learn from him. I think you're going to really enjoy this as well. So without further ado, Dr. Ryan Marino. Ryan, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with fundamentals. 
let's start with basics so that everybody has a good sense of what you do and how you're trained because you and I are going to dive into controversy. We're going to step into tension. We're going to talk about things that come up primarily on social media. That's how you and I met, but obviously are part of the broad societal discourse come up in clinical encounters, come up in the hospitals that we work at, come up when we're seeing patients, come up with friends and families, and then they come up again on social media. We're going to dive into this stuff. We're going to dive into myths about medications, particularly fentanyl. We're going to dive into vaping. We're going to dive into anti-vaccine stuff. We're going to get into all this, but I think before we get into how you interact in that space, I want to frame properly what you do. You are an emergency physician and you are a toxicologist. This is a board certified position, but walk us through what a toxicologist does. So there's different kinds of toxicologists and I am a medical toxicologist. So it means I'm more on the clinical side as opposed to someone who's like a a forensic toxicologist or more of a kind of pharmacy uh, based. So I I deal with uh, kind of the poisoned patient and the definition of that is pretty broad. The main the main thing would be, I mean, kind of people with intoxication from substances, uh, either overdoses, whether that means overdoses on street drugs, overdoses on home medications, kind of with intent to hurt themselves, but also things like venomations from snakes, spiders, other things that bite and sting, heavy metal exposure, and I mean, even radioactive and nuclear exposure would kind of fall under the umbrella of poisonings. Um, so it is very broad. And also one other thing that I think people tend to forget a lot is kind of syndromes like withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal, other other syndromes kind of also fall under that, that umbrella. It meshes really nicely with emergency medicine. And I like that you framed it, that you are a clinical toxicologist because you are right out at the tip of the spear. So you're not in the lab. You're not doing this stuff in a vacuum, you are right out there seeing patients at the point of care when they arrive with whatever toxidrome, whatever poisoning syndrome they may have. Yes, there it's definitely a lot of overlap with emergency medicine. The other thing that you said that kind of, it took me back a little bit when you said you framed it as the poisoned patient. So I shared with you a little bit before we started that when I did my internal medicine residency, we had a very robust toxicology service and the toxicology attendings were board certified in toxicology and in emergency medicine. And they had a bunch of people who'd finished their residency who were doing a fellowship. It was really robust. And they used that term a lot as sort of that umbrella term of, hey, if you're thinking that this is the case, that you have the poisoned patient, please call us. This is what we're here for. This is what we're trained for. It was really, really interesting. How broadly do you think the profession of toxicology on the clinical side reaches? And what I mean by that is in, in how many major cities and how many locales across the United States, how used to people, how used to interacting with toxicology are most people, whether they're in healthcare or outside of it? So I think it is a very uh, kind of small niche specialty. So there, there's not a lot of medical toxicologists. And even if you go broader to include kind of clinical toxicology, forensic toxicology, it's still a very small field. But I, I do think that even though people might not recognize this, they do interact uh, with, with the field of toxicology on a, on a pretty routine basis. Um, I mean, toxicologists are employed by pretty much every major brand from toothpaste to detergent if you call the number on the back of the bottle, if, if your kid swallows 
some of the laundry detergent. Uh, that usually will go to a poison center that is staffed by toxicologists. Um, and I mean, just calling the poison center for kind of if if someone eats a, a plant that they don't know about, um, that's, that's all staffed by uh, medical and clinical toxicologists. That's really important to know because we are all steeped in if this happens, you call poison control. And the end point of poison control is a toxicologist. I don't think that people realize that, grasp it, understand and, and kind of respect that, that that's who you're getting at the other end of that call. Yeah. And poison centers, I mean, are just a very cool concept. I, I can't say enough positive things about them. It's kind of the only area of medicine where you can call a, a 1-800 number and get a get free advice. I mean, if, if you kind of think of it in terms of any other specialty, say if, if you had chest pain, you, you could never call and have a cardiologist tell you whether you need to go to the hospital or not. So it is very unique. And it's essential because you know we're going to get to this, but tempo is the issue. With a lot of the things that fall under the umbrella of the poison patient, the physician needs to move swiftly. Otherwise, things can go sideways very quickly. Yes. Let's then kind of pick up from, we've laid in this foundational work around what a toxicologist is. When you're at work, when you are going to be in the hospital for a while, what are the things that you would frame as the sort of the bread and butter, the things that you know on each shift you need to be locked in, ready to manage, that you're going to probably most likely see what are the, you know, a couple of things that you just, that are, that are just a really common part of the clinical toxicologist experiencing patients? For me personally, and this, I guess, is based on kind of my own anecdotal experiences, but probably could be applied on a, on a larger scale. Um, I think some of the things that I am most familiar with managing, because I, I see the largest percentage of these presentations, would be things like alcohol withdrawal. And I mean, even very serious alcohol withdrawal and delirium tremens is pretty uncommon for most clinicians. Uh, they probably don't manage a lot of that, but that, that's something that I enjoy managing, and I think I can help keep people out of the ICU, um, kind of prevent some complications there. Other things like Tylenol, toxicity is another kind of bread and butter. And then I think a lot of the kind of toxidromes from overdose, whether it's anticholinergic medications or sympathomimetic stimulants like cocaine and meth, um, I think the, the value of a toxicologist is that kind of thinking uh, outside the box and using, using our training to uh, prevent complications that can happen, reduce healthcare costs, reduce length of stay, that kind of stuff. When you're seeing patients, and obviously if they're in a position where their mentation is intact or they've gotten better and they meet you and you share with them what you do, I am a toxicologist and this is what I've been working on to, to help you, what kind of response do you get in terms of level of understanding, level of engagement when you say I'm a toxicologist? How, how does that sort of land when you talk about that with your patients? Most people don't necessarily know what a toxicologist is. When I yeah, kind of yeah. expl explain explain that I treat overdoses, uh, treat drug toxicity, uh, and work in conjunction with the poison control center, then then people definitely understand. So it's not that not that they don't under, have an understanding of this kind of field. It's just that I think um, there isn't really much awareness because it is such a small specialty. So this is kind of what I wanted to do with our time: is this sort of juxtaposition of the clinical side when you're seeing patients and doing work that you're trained to do with what happens on social media. 
And the reason that's how you and I connected with, as it, as it's happened with lots of my guests that I met you virtually on Twitter. We have not yet met in real life and I've watched you work. And so let's start with when you're on social media, you are, I will share with you from my perspective, very good about introducing yourself when you're engaging with people around a number of different topics as a toxicologist. When you're engaging with the general public, and I'll ask you about social media, but just in general, social media, you're at you're, you're a friend's gathering or whatever, and you mention that you're a toxicologist, what is that level of understanding like? I think people are usually very interested. People have a lot of a lot of preconceived notions. Um, there's a lot of kind of like hot topics uh, that people are just talking about, thinking about that kind of relate to toxicology. Um, I mean, whether it's related to kind of the overdose crisis that's going on, um, the the latest new street drug to make it into town, um, or thing things like vaccines, heavy metal exposure, people worry about other like poison gases, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and certainly, I mean, snakes and spiders make for great conversations. People are always interested in that. So it's, it's a good conversation starter. And there's people always have a lot of questions for me. I'll, I'll say that. So what, what are, what are the most common questions that you get when they, when they hear what you do and they get the, the kind of background that you've given, what are those questions? What do they like to ask? Well, so I think the most common questions relate to uh, street drugs are probably the most common question, um, I should say, especially now because we have kind of this overdose crisis. There's so much more attention on kind of street drugs that that's definitely shined a spotlight on the field of toxicology. But everyone is concerned about different exposures. uh, And we kind of live in a world where we're told that things are toxic. I mean, there's a 50 plus billion dollar detox market. There's products being sold over the counter every day. Um, people now are kind of seeing like charcoal makes it into every product. Um, CBD is being put now into every, every single product. And so those kind of things have saturated popular culture. And so people do have a lot of interest in toxins and chemicals and, and other substances. That brings us, I think, to the nexus of the tension. There's toxins and then there's quote unquote toxins. And what I mean by that is there are things that we fully know and recognize and are trained to acknowledge cause poisoning syndromes and are dangerous to human beings. And then there's the sort of quote unquote toxins. And when you were talking just now about a $50 billion detox market, for me, it feels like that is more in the quote unquote side, but give me, am I right? Give me a sense of how do those things break up? Is one of them the place where we should is one of them getting the right amount of attention or is one of them getting way too much attention with no real benefit. So I think the quote unquote toxins gets most of the attention. Um, and I would say like as a, a general blanket statement, when you hear the word toxins kind of in the, the public space, in the press, in regards to commercial products, wherever um, you can probably disregard whatever that is true toxins definitely exist. I mean, that's kind of my whole field of work. So I I don't want to say that there's no such thing as toxins, but the way that word is used has kind of just fallen, fallen completely away from any actual meaning. Um, And certainly like over the counter detox products are all all totally a fantasy. It's kind of a scam built on people's 
desire to have sort of magical thinking, uh, but nothing I do has any, as a toxicologist, has any relation to the idea of detox and toxins. So the a real toxin, I mean, would be like snake venom, but in terms of toxicity, like a- anything at all could potentially be toxic for the most part. But uh, in, in general, like people aren't being exposed to the kind of things that usually these kind of companies are trying to make you believe that there's metals and and other stuff that you need to worry about. That's just not the case. I think that that's been a large part of the problem, though, is that a term that rightly has caused fear and trepidation and concern and a level of alertness, right? Whether it's exposure to contaminated water or, uh, you know, snake envenomation or something like this, has been kind of co-opted by by something else. And that fear is then leveraged as a marketing tool. And I think that that sort of quote-unquote bucket, the $50 billion bucket, it's a shame and it's a problem because it's taking the attention away from where it needs to be. And I would imagine it makes your job considerably harder. It can. I mean, I think that's probably why I try to engage with these kind of myths or whatever you want to call them is because these issues make my job harder, but have real world consequences. And I, I mean, we live in an age where like information is available at your fingertips. Um, and I, I think the rise in pseudo pseudoscience, like having charcoal in every product, uh, charcoal is something that we use medically to remove toxins, uh, but it isn't going to work when it's in your toothpaste or your ice cream um, and might actually have un- unintended consequences. When you then say you want to do, you're trying to break up these myths, right? We all remember the famous TV show Mythbusters. So kind of, I want to get into it with you a little bit. When you wait, when you are seeing patients in the emergency department, right? There's sort of three categories the way I think of it for you. And you'll tell me if I'm wrong. Seeing patients in the emergency department or rounding in the hospital, meeting with friends and colleagues and just meeting people for the first time, just kind of out in the world and then interacting on social media where I know you're very active. If you're doing some myth busting, what would you say are the most common topics that you're asked about or that you weigh in on? I think most recently it's been a lot of these consumer products. And I think one big trend, I mean, has been kind of with cannabis and different different levels of regulation and legalization across the country. Um, but then in regards to kind of other cannabis related products, and especially CBD, uh, CBD is definitely a hot topic that I hear about a lot. Any, any number of detox supplements, um, I, I do get a lot of questions about vaccines. And I think one big thing, I mean, in the emergency department this year, it it's the dead, dead peak of flu season right now now. Um, and we're having a pretty bad flu season here in the United States. And I think most of the, the world is experiencing the same thing. But I, I can't tell you how many times a day I have to explain to people that the flu shot isn't toxic, that you can't get the flu from the flu shot, all of this stuff. And I mean, telling people who have the flu that they could have prevented it, it is kind of a big challenge in my job, because it's preventable. Um, and you hate to see people suffering from something that is totally preventable. When you give this feedback, I would imagine you get a whole spectrum of responses from people. What are the the techniques? What are the word choices that you use that you found to help move the needle when you're counseling someone who right wants is inquiring from the right place is not just there to pick a fight, 
um, who wants to learn, who doesn't want to get influenza, who doesn't want to waste their money, who doesn't want to, you know, fall victim to the kind of the quote unquote side of talks of, of the detox. What are the things that, what are the tools that you use where you found some success? So I really just like trying to get people to explain to me what their concerns are. And yeah. I mean, usually, usually like if there's some sort of fear involved, um, and if, if I can help kind of break down whatever the fear is, I mean, if they think they're going to get the flu from the flu shot, that's pretty easy. I can sit down and we can talk about how there's no, that's impossible. The reason that people think that is just that pure, pure coincidence. But in, in terms of other things like drug myths, and that when I say drugs, I mean street drugs, it, it really is kind of more about people's uh, like deep-seated biases that come from kind of our society as a whole um, and kind of our the culture that we have um, and, and different beliefs uh, that have kind of shaped, shaped where those myths and misinformations and misconceptions come from. So you obviously have a lot of experience and the tools that you lay out are really helpful around what are the things we can do to help people make good decisions for themselves. What are the strategies and the approaches that you recommend we avoid? that are not going to be helpful, that are going to alienate, that may, that just don't make progress? What are the strategies in terms of communicating with people when they have these sorts of questions that we should stay away from? It's kind of human nature to become frustrated when someone believes something that you know not to be true. Um, and that's generally what I, I try to keep in mind. And the kind of told you so, um, or like me versus them mentality usually just will lead to people kind of building up their defenses and becoming very defensive and then not being open to receiving any new information. Uh, if you can kind of get them to articulate what their fears are or what their concerns are, usually there's some way to, even if you can't alleviate those fears, um, kind of redirect them. And so, I mean, a, a great example, I would say, in terms of kind of opioids and this overdose crisis is a lot of people are scared that they're going to overdose just because there's more potent drugs out on the street. And while I know that not to be true and try to explain that all the time, uh, people don't always want to listen to what some random guy is telling them. So one technique that I've learned is to try to redirect this into kind of encouraging people to get naloxone, the antidote, if they're worried about overdoses, um, then to just be prepared. Um, and I mean, doing education about how to actually recognize the signs of an overdose. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities in those kind of areas where people are either misinformed or um, have these these fears for education. And even if you can't change their mind about the specific thing, maybe you can teach them something else uh, and kind of help prepare them and Help, help better better everybody how are we doing with that work the the things that are effective and the things that are not effective because I would I, I feel like for just our profession in general and I think from a societal perspective what you what you said is true I mean that resonated with me that it's frustrating and it can feel exhausting and it can feel futile and those sorts of responses whether it's by word or by affect, they will cause more defensiveness and more digging in of heels and less progress. It's, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. How do you feel like we're doing uh, 
overall? Are we moving this stuff in the right direction or do you feel like we're all wearing down? I think, I mean, it's kind of one step forward, one step back, kind of all the, all the time here. And I think we are moving in the right direction overall. But I mean, medicine as a specialty over the past, however many years you want to look at, but the further back you go, probably the worse it gets. But it has definitely done some things to kind of lose credibility. And we know that the patriarchal way that medicine used to be has also caused people to kind of turn away from that. Um, and so that that's kind of created this void where new new things have popped up and a lot of them can be harmful um, or just plain stupid. Uh, but, but people look to those kind of things because maybe they feel more listened to or they had some sort of bad experience. And so I think just trying to remember that there, there is a reason that this happened. And if we want to make progress, we have to kind of also keep that in the back of back of our mind. I can't just tell someone I know everything about drugs. I'm, I mean, that isn't true to begin with, but no one's ever going to take me seriously or listen to me if, if that's how I kind of start off the conversation is I'm going to tell you what to know. It's not about being right versus wrong all the time. Uh, people's lived experiences certainly do matter. Um, and I mean, again, not, not to keep kind of like re rehashing the same example, but in terms of people think they can overdose on drugs just by touching them. People have, I've talked to people, I've treated people who think they have had those symptoms from touching drugs. And certainly it's not to say that they're not smart or they don't know what they're talking about uh, or that they're lying or that they didn't even have a real experience because certainly something happened to them and their symptoms are real. Uh, but it's just kind of trying to see how we can educate people without kind of lecturing at them or lecturing to them. That's the work. I mean, that, 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 that's a great summation and that's the work we did, I think our profession did sort of leave a vacuum and into that vacuum, a lot of other forces were able to step. And then at the same time, some, some of the ways that the work used to get done, I think you laid out very skillfully how that can be ineffective and how it can be perceived. And we have work to do to change that. And it's really easy to say that, I mean, if someone wants, doesn't want our help, like, screw them, let them, let them go do whatever they want. But I think that's the wrong answer as well. And so we, we have to find a middle ground and I, I don't, I don't have the best answer here. If I had an answer, this, this would all be solved and I'd be able to retire or something. Um, <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, it, it, it's going to take a lot of work. It's, it's not easy. Um, and these conversations can be very difficult and can be incredibly frustrating. Um, but it's, it's baby steps. I, I think that th that humble approach is, also really helpful because I think, you, as you mentioned, right, there is a perception that people are going to encounter arrogance or hubris. And hearing you say what you just said, I think that's the way we have to go forward and recognize that there's always ways we can do this better. The objective is for people to be healthy and not have things happen to them that we can prevent and help guide them to make the right decisions to affect that. But that then brings us to another place where you do this work, which is on social media, primarily on Twitter, as I mentioned before. Whatever it is, is it 140 now or 280? I always forget. But regardless of how many characters you get in a tweet, it's really <laughs> short. You don't get to expound the way you just did. And the topics are the most provocative ones, whether it's you know 
anti-vaxxers coming at you or people talking about vaping or what you were just identifying, which is a concern that people can have a toxidrome from touching a drug. And I think the most common one is people are worried that that can happen with fentanyl. What is it like having those conversations on social media where you're meeting people where they live, you're, you're there, but it's difficult to communicate. So social media is tricky. Certainly in real life. I mean, this is like emotions can be expressed. If there's frustration, I mean, it's like can be palpable on social media. You lose all of all of that. Um, And I think the other issue with social media is that there is there are people with an agenda. I mean, pushing false narratives on social media. Um, And so, I mean, my main goal is just to kind of push back against false narratives um, I, I can't necessarily convey 100% empathy in, in every tweet um, and probably probably not much uh, emotion. There's definitely something lost in translation there. But I think the goal is just more to make sure that good information can be disseminated and false information, harmful narratives kind of are, are questioned. I have received a lot of criticism from different people that I'm doubting their real life experience, or they feel that me saying that something isn't possible is a personal attack to them. And so I think that's a risk that you take on social media there. You can't get the kind of complexity of human conversation there, but just trying to remember that the end game is to ensure that there's less harms um, and try to keep people safe. I'm not trying to say that I'm the smartest person. I, I don't want to be the smartest person. I'm just trying to help people do their jobs, be a little safer, not have to worry as much, that kind of thing. And I think if people have the right to spread disinformation on social media, then it's it's equally my right to spread information um, on social media. So I take those criticisms and I, I just have to keep going. I like the way you put that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the more people that can look at it that way, the more we can move the right kind of information towards people who need to hear it. How sustainable is it? Because I, there are times where I am following you and it can get ugly. Uh, people have, I've read things that people have written to you on social media. It's, it's rough. It's really harsh. What is the what are the ways that you're able to kind of take care of yourself when you're thinking I'm doing this because I want to help people make decisions that are going to help them avoid harm and live a healthy life, and yet they're saying these things. How do we? How do you keep that? I don't know at arm's length, or how do you keep that away? It's definitely hard, um, and it has taken a long time to kind of be able to do that. And I mean, I still am not able to do it as well as I should. But um, trying to remember that, so like social media is—it's not real life. My my clinical work kind of gives me great satisfaction, and then I mean, I try to try to maintain like a balance with my personal life as well. So one of the things that that I See, and I, I mean, I think every, everyone's goal should be if you can change one person's mind, if you can teach one person better information, correct one one person's myths, then I mean, that's worth it. If you can do more than that, great. But uh, take take your victories where you can. So when someone tells me that they used to think you could overdose on fentanyl by touching it, and now they believe that you cannot, 
or they're going to tell tell someone they know that you cannot overdose on fentanyl by touching it. Or if I hear that someone went out and got naloxone from the pharmacy, um, then then those are kind of the, the small victories, the baby steps that I try to keep in my mind. Um, and I think it's human nature to focus on negative things. And that's probably one of our like evolutionary survival instincts. But uh, training yourself to kind of let, let those other things go. You're not going to change everyone's mind. And I certainly have given up on trying to change everyone's mind. I like the way you framed it as, you know, we, we, we beat up on ourselves and we can be hard on ourselves and you've changed your mindset around that. There was something that you said there where I think another mindset change can be helpful. You, you were talking about how one person says, Hey, I've changed my behaviors because I no longer believe that I can overdose on fentanyl by touching it, or I changed my behaviors and I got naloxone that was being distributed for free. So I now carry that with me to take care of someone. If I see them having an overdose syndrome, that's not a small victory. That's huge. That that's why we're here. And I, I just, when you said the word small victory, I thought that is huge. That is exactly why we do what we're do. We, we don't have to do it at scale. It's that's what you have one interaction with one person. If you're able to change their mind and affect their behavior to the good, that's huge. Yeah, it is. And I mean, just trying to remember that those are both small and large victories. Absolutely. And so we get to the point now where we say people want to learn more about you and the work that you do. Obviously, they never want to have to meet you in a clinical scenario because that means something has gone wrong and they are now in that umbrella of the poison patient. But when people ask you for resources, when they want to learn more, when they want to go to the right sources, where do you like to refer them? Are there some go-tos where you say, you know what, these are some good places that you can learn the right information that will hopefully impact your decision-making and your behaviors? Yes. I think it depends on what specifically they're looking for. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I can't say enough positive about my professional society, the American College of Medical Toxicology. They have a lot of resources available that they are the toxicologists who are probably manning your local poison center. And their website is a great place to start for some common questions in terms of kind of like street drugs and information about that. Um, and even resources for kind of people who are using drugs. Um, I think there's a lot of local uh, like harm reduction groups. Um, and I also can't say enough positive about kind of harm reduction uh, and these the people who do these harm reduction initiatives, nonprofits, whatever they are, these are essentially people who are kind of filling the gaps where the medical community has decided not not to provide evidence-based uh, treatments or whatever ways to reduce harms to people. Um, and so that that's kind of another great resource. I, I think if anyone has any questions about street drugs, certainly talk talk to the people you know, people who use drugs often know more than than doctors, which is kind of sad to say, but any harm reduction group is also a great resource. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes as well. That's really, really helpful stuff. And then if people want to interact with you, see what you're doing on social media, how do they find you? So I am on Twitter at Ryan Marino, one word, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. That's where I found you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll probably see you there later tonight too. <laughs> Ryan, this was a total treat. I, I, it's interesting, you know, sometimes so, when you don't, you said social media is not real life and 
it gives you an impression of somebody and the the thoughtfulness and the completeness of your approach to this and the considered way that you think about all this stuff is really impressive. And it's really, really helpful because I think all of us are trying to do this in a way where we want to get better and we want to help other people to get better. And so hearing you discussing it in this forum alongside the work that you do on social media to try to debunk these myths and to try to help guide people to good decision-making. It's really impressive. It's really exciting. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.